Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where we send SaaS founders back in time to explain cloud technology to historical figures armed only with a sock puppet and a box of crayons. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope you to be SaaS founders like you profitably scale from seven figures, which is really good, to eight and nine figures, which is amazingly great. We use a proven process to create premium valuation, capital efficient growth, and freedom so that you build a business that you're proud of and create a life of impact that you absolutely love. Well, it has been another crazy week in the business world. Two giants are out of the game. First was BuzzFeed News, I mean, shutting down. Memo from CEO Jonah Peretti said, you know, we face more challenges than I can count in the past few years. Pandemic, fading SPAC market that yielded less capital, tech recession, tough economy, declining stock market, decelerating digital advertising market, and ongoing audience and platform shifts. A lot of crazy things. Building a business is hard. Uh, it absolutely is. And we've all faced challenges. Some companies do really, really well and others fade in the same economy, same industry. Why is that? Hold that thought and we'll come back to it. The second big announcement came from Bed Bath & Beyond. 53-year-old company, 360 locations, another 120 bye-bye baby stores. And just a few years ago, $12 billion in revenue, $80 a share, now $0.07. Cents. So how does that happen? I think there are some parallels between the two companies, completely different industries. But the parallels that I see that both companies lost their audience. So if we take for a second, we just set aside the economy, funding choices and outside factors. They both have an audience problem. BuzzFeed you know, the audience shifted and went somewhere else, another platform, another medium. I mean, they said that, you know, partly in that the memo there. But, you know, whatever the reason, they ain't here no more. And we see the same thing in Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, just a few years ago, they brought in a new hotshot CEO from Target. He tried the same strategy that worked well at Target, private label, their own brands of things. And they ended up with a bunch of stuff they couldn't sell. Um, think about like Circuit City uh, a few years ago. Uh, same kind of situation there. You know, but they brought in brands, and these are unfamiliar brands with their audience because it's their own private label brands. Their audience wanted something they knew and trusted, and it wasn't on the shelves anymore. And so it wasn't that that was a bad strategy. It just wasn't the right strategy for their audience. It worked for Target, but it did not work at Bed Bath & Beyond. Losing touch with your ideal clients is absolutely deadly. And I think we're seeing an example of that here. Very, very similar scenario a few years ago. JCPenney hired a hotshot from Apple. Uh, you know, we're going to put cafes in JCPenney stores and market like Apple is total brand arrogance. JCPenney and Apple, way two different brands, completely different audiences. And it didn't work. And again, because they did not know their audience. What lessons can we as SaaS founders learn? Uh, number one, I think, is agility. The market is always in motion. And I write about this in my book. Uh, the market is always in motion. That creates opportunities, but it also creates threats, especially for established companies. 
Uh, know your ideal customers, know why they choose you, know their preferences, because as trends change, you must adapt if you're going to survive, sometimes very quickly. And to do that, make small bets, test quickly, get feedback and adjust because agility wins. No matter the size of the business, even if you're a $12 billion company, find a way to remain agile. Second is don't assume that you know better than the customers. Now, many companies fail because they assume that they know better. And I've 100% done this myself. It's really easy to fall into the trap of if I build it, they will come. I got this great idea. I know what they need. And often cited as the example, you know, I've worked with iPhone or iPad. And the reality is that most of us are not category creators. You know, we need to take that journey with our customers, not just go and hope that they will figure it out, get on board and follow. And three, what works in one place will not necessarily work in another. A huge mistake I see SaaS founders make is hiring someone because they had a role in a big name company. Specific role and contributions in that success matter. Just because they had a title doesn't mean that, that they were necessarily orchestrating that success. You know, you have to look at it. Were they a driver of success or were they just a passenger in a successful vehicle? And it could be either one. Support staff, resources, company size, all of that matters. One size does not fit all. You know, there's a big difference, you know, Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, where do they fit in the marketplace? Do the strategies work? Strategies are not always portable from one industry to another or one company to another. Principles are, character is, wisdom is, experience, true experience absolutely is because they've seen scenarios before. But just taking the same strategy and plugging it in somewhere else may not give you the best results. It may give terrible results. It might work. But hiring successful people is smart. I mean, no question about that. But don't think that that person is a magic pill or the same strategy. And I'm not throwing rocks here. I have made all of these mistakes and dozens more. Building a business is hard. But anytime something like this happens, I always want to look at the lessons and evaluate my own businesses Am I making that same mistake? Am I losing touch with my clients? Am I thinking that I'm going to hire a person? They're going to fix all these problems or fix a specific problem. And we go back to one of the deadly sins of SaaS is throwing people at problems. So always look at these types of things. Do a postmortem yourself and identify what the issues were and look at your own business. You have to do that and say, OK, am I making these same mistakes in my business? And if I am, how can I fix it and do that quickly? Today's episode is sponsored by the book, Small Fish, Big Pond, Building a World-Class Business that Swims Circles Around Competitors, right here. Why do some SaaS companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? Why do some solutions inspire fierce brand loyalty while others are interchangeable? Just like we've talked about today. What can we as SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful marketing and leadership lessons guaranteed to enhance your marketing message, wrap value around your clients, and guide their buying journey to conclude that your company is the only solution for them. It includes step-by-step -step frameworks and time-tested growth tools to attract ideal clients, convert them, and transform them into brand ambassadors. So pick up the print book, ebook, or audiobook today at smallfishbigpond.com. Amazon, or your favorite book source, wherever that may be. Our expert guest last week was Park Howell, the world's most industrious storyteller. Helps business leaders excel through the stories they tell. So you want to supercharge your marketing with story? This is a great episode. 
And our founder on Tuesday was SalesOrg found. Our founder on Tuesday was Troy Barter, founder of SalesOrg.io. Troy trains technology salespeople and helps sales pros excel using a sales process that feels good and solves real-world problems. Our expert guest last week was Park Howell, the world's most industrious storyteller, who helps brand leaders excel through the stories they tell. Want to supercharge your marketing? This is a great episode to do that. So go back and give it a listen. And of course, this week we're talking all about sales and marketing. Sales on Tuesday, marketing today. And our current guest is Vladimir Blagojevich, founder and CEO of FullFunnel.io. He is in the trenches of B2B marketing and SaaS and tech. Vlad works with B2B tech brands looking to drive awareness and demand for their products and land six-figure opportunities with enterprise accounts. So a lot of the things we're asked about are sales and marketing, especially enterprise sales. This is a great episode for you. So welcome someone who creates full sales funnels, Vladimir Blagojevich. Well, hey, Vlad, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I love your background. You started out technical and moved to the dark side in marketing. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that journey and how that happened. Yeah, I started off actually in academia first two years, <laughs> then moved to programming. I was kind of always looking for more impact. I remember, you know, being in academia, I really hated that. That was like, for me, zero impact in a way. And then programming, I liked, you know, being in software, building stuff. I always liked to build stuff, but still kind of removed from the end customer. And then I ended up actually having to do sales myself. Uh, in a consulting role, having to sell projects. And I always consider myself like sales, commercial, like completely not. I always consider myself like an engineering, intellectual type, never commercial. But then when I realized that sales is, is actually about listening and uh, understanding and basically helping people find solutions in a way, uh, I, I ended up being much better than my sales colleague, although that wasn't my primary role. And I thought, hmm... You know, because I wasn't in a sales role, I didn't get any commissions. I remember selling a project that was like almost a million, didn't get any commission. I was like, hmm, maybe I should do this for myself. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and that's when I started my first company that failed, but I, there I, I learned a lot about marketing and the rest is history. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that that happens a lot when people are in engineering or, or maybe a, like a sales engineer or something like that, kind of helping with the process. And then the deal happens and they're like, but I didn't make anything out of that. Why not? <laughs> so that, that makes a lot of sense. So was sales something that, that you just never wanted to do or you thought it was something you didn't have the skills for? I had no idea what it was. Like I had a completely wrong perception about sales um, and marketing for that matter. I always... Like and and the other day I was just visiting my family and speaking to my eighty-four year old father. He's really in good health and everything. But and like what is his perception of marketing? It's some sort of man manipulation, right? And sales and marketing, it's somehow dirty. It's not, you know, like engineering, it's all about creating things. And this is like, you know, tricking people into <laughs> <laughs> buying stuff. That's the perception. Um and then, of course, like I said, when I discovered it, it's actually about really understanding, it's a lot about empathy and understanding about uh, listening and asking questions and really like uh, figuring out what the people need and then helping them, if you can, obviously, with your solution, 
present that solution in their context in a way that this is helpful to them uh, is how most good sales, I believe, happen. And marketing is not that different at the end, especially when it comes to marketing of complex, let's say high ACV, complex solutions that are not uh, transactional impulse buys. That makes a lot of sense. What were the, the big lessons you learned out of that first company? Uh, the big lessons they learned out of my failed companies. So. <laughs> well, I, I learned, although I thought that I was kind of doing customer first and validating and all, all of these things, I, my biggest lesson was that there is always bias. And I was very much solution biased. And this is something that I see with each and every client that I work with. Uh, when we talk about, in, for example, one of the things that we always insist on is interviewing their customers. So instead of basing the messaging and the strategy and the ICP, uh, ideal customer profile, based on their interpretations or assumptions, we always want to base it on the real data and customer research. And they always, but we know our customers. Uh, and then when you start talking to it, to them about it. What you hear much more is you hear about solutions. You don't really hear about their customers, their problems and, and their situation. So I think there is like this inherent bias that everybody who builds products, sells products, uh, especially like entrepreneurs who are kind of in love with their solution, uh, have uh, this kind of solution bias. And in a, in a way, it, it's even, it's, it's, it's your job to solve somebody's problem. It's, your job to think of solutions and that kind of bi makes you biased and makes it difficult for you to uh, really leave yourself in, to put yourself in the shoes of your customers, which is what you need to do to do good marketing. I think that's a really interesting distinction is actually doing the interview instead of just taking what they've, they've collected or kind of the, the lazy way that, that I've seen it done is they'll send out surveys. And they'll, oh, they'll yeah. ask some questions. And a lot of times the survey is kind of looking for an answer. And, and that's yeah. where you see that solution bias also. Yeah, especially if it's like um, a multiple select instead of an open question. Even with an open question, you don't have an opportunity. Well, people are going to provide a very short answer. Uh, you're, you don't have a, an opportunity to do follow-up questions, to dive deeper. And again, it's like when you're talking to a customer and they say something like, you know, you're asking, let's, I don't know, about the challenge they had before working with you, like a very cl classical question that you might ask, and uh, you know, what triggered them to start searching for a solution like yours. They might say something, okay, we had such and such a problem. We, um, I don't know, we were wasting, I don't know, we were not getting enough, uh, you know, most of our leads were not co converting or, or something like that. In a lot of cases, they might just say things assuming that you know their context, but of course you don't know. And it's only by asking follow-up and follow-up and follow-up that you get to the why behind the why behind the why, in other words, to the root cause of, of, of it, right? And this, this, these are things that you really cannot do in surveys, right? Right, right. And I think it's, some of it is just hearing what's not being said and As knowing well. where to, to dig deeper. Because those surface answers will get you a little bit of information, but it's when you really dig and ask the why questions and go you know, layer after layer after layer deeper is when the, the real gold comes out. I mean, it's, it's like, 
okay, this is this has been a problem. Why was it difficult? What did you try to do about it? Right? Um, why why didn't it work? Why do why do you think it didn't work? And uh, why is this a priority right now? What what other problems are you not solving and deciding to solve this one? Is this big? Is this part of a bigger picture? You know, a bigger strategic project or whatever, or is it just about whatever uh, the project that you're solving? So there is just so much to uncover uh, that you know you would never be able to do in a just a one one direction survey kind of thing. Right, right. Well, clearly you've you've moved past that failure and been extremely successful. So taking those lessons, what have been the big marketing lessons and sales lessons that you've learned that that you would pass on to other entrepreneurs, especially the ones like you're working with and building their companies? Yeah, so we work with companies, like I quickly mentioned, so it's usually B2B uh, tech companies, mostly B2B SaaS with deal sizes of minimum 30k i would say usually between 500k 5 uh i'm sorry uh, 50k 500k uh majority of them of course they will have some you know whale deals etc but majority is five six figures where you have typically longer sales cycles you have multiple buyers you know you have either upper mid market or enterprise customers where the whole thing you know, is 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 more complex, and you need to uh, influence the whole committee instead of just one person. And the big lessons when it comes to this kind of sale and this kind of marketing uh, is actually that, in most cases, while while I see a lot of even entrepreneurs or marketers, for that matter, looking for you know, the next tactic or maybe the channels, you know, oh, we should all go to TikTok or what, what not, right? So right. looking for these kind of things, like where they fail is usually it's not because of not mastering the channel or maybe, you know, whatever, copywriting, whatever kind of skills, storytelling. A lot of people like to, to talk about storytelling and things like that. Usually the reason that they fail is the lack of foundation and understanding who your ideal customer is, doing the research as we spoke about it, then having specific positioning, how do you position your product uh, for your ideal customer? How, why are you uh, different? How are you different and why are you worth buying? Why should they buy from you and not from your competition? Like figuring these basic things out is what is missed in a lot of companies. And I think this is for me the biggest lesson. Uh, and the other part of it is that usually it's not because you're not doing a specific activity, campaign or whatever uh, good enough. It's usually because either, like I mentioned, you miss the foundation or you miss the piece of the puzzle. What I mean by that is you know, people might be, or companies or teams might be doing a lot of, for example, awareness or legion activities, uh, right? Uh, or vice versa, trying to do legion without generating awareness and demand. Right. Uh, or maybe doing awareness without really closing the loop and then going, you know, uh, nurturing and qualifying and, you know, helping also sales and after sales, like there's a, why we call our companies a full funnel is like looking at the 
complete picture from the start all the way until sales, repeat sales, upselling, expansion, etc. I think that's really interesting. Just there are a lot of nuances to marketing. So mm-hmm. it's not just one thing. I mean, you talked about awareness and lead generation, but doing things in the right order matters. So and that's one of the reasons that we have the picture of the funnel. So how does full yes. funnel help somebody, you know, take it from, you know, I need more leads to to really building a complete marketing program that's effective that hits all of those areas? Yeah, that's a good question. So essentially of course, going back to the basis, understanding, creating a solid go-to-market strategy, uh, which is all of the things that we spoke about, understanding who your ideal customer is in high ACV situations. That usually also means narrowing down on specific verticals, use cases. A lot of companies are uh, quote-unquote industry agnostic, uh, where, of course, their buyers are not. And right. they buy very differently, right? <laughs> and so if you want to, if they're buying differently, you need to market and sell differently. And that's why we want to understand where you actually have an advantage, where you have, you know, where, where the fit is that starts from the target segments, verticals and use cases goes into understanding the buyer committee, like everybody who is influencing, participating in the decision-making process and the buying process itself and the buyer journey that has evolved. Like if you, if you look at the way that people are buying today is very different than how it was maybe 10, well, maybe even five years ago, right? Things are changing super fast. And understanding how your customers are buying, where they are learning, how are they discovering solution like yours? What purchase criteria do they have? What objections do they have? And it's essentially what stages do they go through and what questions and objections do they have as they move through that process? Who do they ask? Who do they follow? Et cetera, et cetera. Understanding that is really the first step and, and the essence. Um, in the next step, you want to start building out your full funnel. And the first step is generating awareness. Uh, generating awareness usually is all about basically the early stages of the buyer journey, which start with, you know, the, your, your buyers maybe having a specific issue. You know, a lot of companies actually start there, but, um, we all have issues, right? We all have, sure. I mean, it's our job to deal with stuff, right? right. It's our job. We are paid, uh, uh, paid potentially, hopefully good money. And so it's not even just the issue itself, but why is this issue suddenly becoming a priority? What kind of triggering events uh, in the environment, in the market or wherever internally have to happen for you to start actually really considering a change or considering uh, implementing a solution because nobody really wants to do that. Nobody has the time. We all are like super busy. Nobody really has the time for buying, you're usually buying on top of everything else that you're doing, right? So it's like the last possible resort for <laughs> for the buyer is having to change, having to now go on top of everything else they're doing, find a solution. Then, and that's just like a top of top of the iceberg, right? You, then you have to actually you purchase it, and you have to implement. You have to do change management. And and buyers know that, and they don't like doing that. They don't want to do it unless it's really urgent. And so these are the kind of things you want to understand. This is what I'm talking about, awareness, 
these are the kind of topics that you need to be talking about. And like to be very practical, um, what we see work very well is, and it doesn't, it's not really so much about, you know, whatever channels that you're using, you could be using social. I don't know. Maybe your buyers are on LinkedIn. Um, and your buyers obviously like will be reading emails. So you might have a newsletter. You might have, you know, for example, some social activity on LinkedIn. Maybe you'd have a podcast like yourself, right? Right. But the key there is. What are the topics that you're posting about or talking about? That's the key, key thing. And then we go back to the bio research. If you're done your bio research, if you understand how, you know, the triggers and the problems and how they discover and evaluate your solution like that, this will give you a direct input to the topics you should be creating content about. So if you nail that relevance, the next thing you need to nail for awareness is consistency, right? So you need to have a, operationalized process in place where you're cranking out whatever, uh, a LinkedIn post per day, uh, podcast interview per week, uh, webinar every month, whatever your cadences are, or a calendar, if you like, is, is, is really important because I, I like it. Somebody said to me, uh, you know, whatever number of touches that you might need, there were, you know, studies with like seven, 13, it's probably much more, but that actually means that you have to post maybe 200 times so that your buyer sees it, sees it 40 times and actually reads it 10 times, right? Right. So you need to be consistent there uh, and, 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 and keep showing up. That's a hard thing um, to do. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and everybody struggles with that. They think it's a great idea and jump in. But then that consistency, I, it's kind of like going to the gym. People in <laughs> January, people go and, and then by the end of January, February starts and it's empty again. This is this is so true. Uh, this is indeed, and it's kind of like a, what they call the second quadrant activity. It's uh, important but not urgent, right? right? And that's part of it. And so it's very easy to postpone. It's very easy to deprioritize. And the second part of it is that it's kind of like if you imagine a hockey stick graph, right? At the beginning of the hockey stick graph. You have nothing, right? You, you, you're doing a lot. And this is the same with awareness creation and demand generation is you will be doing a lot. You might be posting every day on LinkedIn, but you're not going to see the results. And we like to think linearly. Like we, we expect results to be like, okay, I'm going to post, I don't know, five times and I'm going to get a lead. But that's not how it works. It takes a while for you to build your audience, to figure out what works, what doesn't work, to also appear enough time on the radar of, of your buyers uh, to have some social proof, et cetera, et cetera, before there will be some results. But the good news is, so it's, it's going to be like a long time before you start seeing the results. At the beginning, you might be seeing some early signals and, and things like that, but real revenue results might take a quarter or two before you're actually starting to get leads. And usually the first kind of opportunities you will generate will be more let's say people you already know, maybe buyers you were in contact with. So there is already some sort of trust, et cetera. And they start seeing you and the time becomes right. And then they reach out to you. So really like completely mm, new opportunities, not new. You, you haven't had any contact with that. That's more like, you know, six months or, or, or later. So it takes a lot of patience and, and 
and understanding that this process works like that, right? But the good news is that the hockey stick is the hockey stick, so the, the result the results compound. You right. know, every time the the bigger your audience, every next time you're posting, more people are going to see, right? The higher your credibility, the more people will. The better your message, the better your content relevance. All these things. These are the things that compound and grow. The more you know, you're connected from people from the industry. Like you and I are having a conversation because we are both active in the community, right? right? And that's how we got to know each other. And the more people like that you start to know, the more your message gets amplified. And all of these things are kind of multipliers, right? That they all multiply the effect of every action you take. And that's why the results tend to compound over over time. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so being consistent just because you don't have results overnight. So does organic still work or does it have to be paid? That's a good question. Um, I, it depends, of course, on the scale, how fast you want to go and all of these things. Uh, we are at, at our scale, so we are a small company and we cannot handle the opportunities that we get purely from organic. And but of course, like if you if you want to scale that, you you can add the paid layer. Now, the main maybe just two takeaways there I would like to mention is the first one is that it is I, I would I would advise to start with organics simply because um, there is no like you you're going to see what works and what doesn't work it, it it is about figuring out what works and what doesn't work it's it's about figuring out what your audience is actually what's resonating with your audience and uh, the, the the i mean uh, a fool with a tool is still a fool so you can amplify a message but if the message is not or content in terms of like what what paid it's a guaranteed distribution right that's it guarantees right. that your message is going to appear in front of your buyers but it doesn't guarantee that your message is going to be good that's kind of the point and of course you can also experiment with paid etc uh but i found i found that organic is a a really good way at the beginning, at the very beginning, when people, when companies are just start, teams are, are just starting, uh, to figure out what's working, what's not working, and uh, what resonates, and then use pay to scale that up. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't want to don't want to amplify a message that doesn't resonate. That's just a waste of time Absolutely. and money. And and at the beginning, you want to do things that don't scale, just because, like. I, I prefer to have, I don't know, like I'm running a first campaign. I prefer to have maybe maximum 10 accounts in my campaign where I can do a lot of things manually, can connect to the buyers manually. I can be, and have conversations with them because I'm going to learn. Like if I'm just doing paid distribution or paid ads or whatever, I'm going to see that something works or it doesn't work, but I'm not going to see why. It works or it doesn't work, right? So there is no, because there is a lack of that two-way communication. So if at the beginning you focus on a small, so you, you usually advise to start with a pilot, right? So you start with a pilot and you include a small number of accounts, but you do them manually and you, you focus on buyer conversations and that two-way communication so that you can get that feedback and refine before scaling up. That's, uh, I think that's really essential. Yeah, that's really, really good. 
So how do you think B2B marketing has changed uh, over the even the last five years? What you see a lot is that we see this change, like a lot of the marketing that was done, let's say, up to a few years ago, I would say not even five, was focused on automation, scaling. You know, of course, we started a lot, especially in B2B with lead gen, focus on lead gen, with the promise of the platforms and the MarTech vendors, right, that we can just, you know, put the money in and the machine will just crank out opportunities and leads. And maybe at the beginning, some of that worked. But of course, you know, the, the market has evolved, the buying process has changed, uh, the competition is just like mind-boggling bong- compared to like, what was it, 2011? Uh, when I started, when I started, had my per- first company, there were 150 Martech startups. And now, I don't know, like a year ago, there were almost 9,000. Wow. <laughs> just the speed of evolution. It's just like, so it's uh, the way to think about it is it's essentially you're living in a infinite supply, in, a, in an environment of infinite supply. There is always a competitor. There's always right. a, little, a lot of competition out there, right? So all of these things and, and, and competition, both in terms of like direct competitors, products in your category, but also in terms of uh, attention, right? There is a, even a higher competition for the attention. Right. So um, that's ju- that. these are the kind of things that have changed, but also the, the, the I mean, in B2B, especially complex B2B, high ACV B2B, it's not... It's not a transactional sale. It's not like I need a new pair of shoes and I go online. I know exactly what kind of shoes. I don't need to do research, um, you know, whatever kind of running shoes. And there I just need to make a choice between two or three. I'm clicking through the ads. I'm reading quickly the copy and I'm deciding within an hour, uh, well, maybe even faster, uh, buying that. Uh, and and yeah, in complex sales, that's not how it happens, of course. So it, it's a long process with multiple people, etc. So expecting to have this kind of transactional result. So you know, six-figure buyers don't wake up one day and uh, just because they received an email, a cold email, or I don't know, like just the fifth or the sixth nurture email or something like that, or seen an ad. And say, ah, actually, I might need a solution like that, right? That's not what, how it happens, right? Um, and especially at the beginning when they start their research, they're usually there. I mean, I've I've done via our clients and and ourselves with hundreds and hundreds of interview, hundreds and hundreds of B two B buyers. And whenever you ask them this question, how do you discover solutions? How do you start your buyer journey? It's usually they're asking. They're asking people people who they trust. They're asking within their organization. They're working in a large organization. They're asking in their network. They're maybe asking some close communities, but they're asking other people. Uh, it's only later when they start figuring out, uh, what, having a better knowledge of the category, maybe they're going to start really going on Google, searching, researching category and uh, landing maybe on your website or on, on those uh, like G2 and all of these comparison websites. 
but at the beginning, it's usually a kind of word of mouth recommendation, maybe discovering that maybe on a podcast, maybe you, you've spoken to somebody and somebody's listening to your podcast and you recommend a solution or somebody mentions something that they're using. So that, and because they, they trust you, uh, they say, okay, maybe I should, maybe I should check it out. Right. So, um, I kind of lost my <laughs> train of thought. There. Well, when does the buyer journey start? Yeah, is it because we normally think it's when somebody goes and, and searches for a solution? Is that the the beginning, or does it start before that? That's a good question. I believe that the buyer journey doesn't start uh, like that. Like <laughs> like a lot of companies might have this <laughs> idea. It starts with a click on the website, right? Or, right, right. Or uh, or their or their ad. Uh, it's it's not even like like we, we were talking about it's not even people having an issue like we have issues all the time we are dealing sure. with them it's only when something happens that changes the priority something happens i don't know maybe my potential client a marketer cmo had um his or her ceo had a second quarter in a row where they missed the targets had a bad board meeting and as the shit tends to roll down in organizations, <laughs> they have to figure out what's going on. So this is right. this could be like an example of a triggering event. There may be the crisis right now, and you know it's not anymore there. They have to be much more thoughtful about their budget. Budgets are being cut, etc. So this could be another triggering event for them to reconsider the way that they're doing marketing. For example, right. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So something is, 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 is happening that that is changing the priority, suddenly making a, a specific issue or a goal a priority, and that's how the buyer journey, I believe, starts. I think another way it could start as well is, uh, let's say, a demand trigger, if you want to, if if I may call it like that. Sure. Where you're. Just becoming aware because I don't know, you went on an event, like you and I met apparently in Austin at right. Nathan, Nathan's event, Founder 500. And you heard there somebody speak and you, dis- you hear about, so maybe it was a company like yours and you just discovered a new way of doing things. I was listening there to somebody speaking about how important the uh, tell, uh, skill testing was like, and yes. when they were like skilling and hiring, and I heard about it, and, th- and I thought, okay, I, I never thought about it. But this might ex- be exactly what we need as as we are hiring, right? So sometimes you can discover an opportunity like that, and this, it may come on your uh, come on your ra- radar, and you might start considering that solution if you can, of course, link it to a priority that you have. And it makes sense that yeah, you know, it's it's that the shift that uh, you know inertia. We just keep doing what we're, we're always doing, and then something shifts, and we say, "Oh, now I got to deal with this." And yes. so it's that point that that we start on that journey, and uh, you know yes. what it, what's out there, what's available. Exactly, exactly. And even even before what's out there, it's like okay, maybe the trigger was we are missing the targets. We first have to figure out why are we missing the target? What's going on, right? It's it's like even before you're starting to think of course, there is no solution increase my targets, right? There is a right. solution for, you know, uh, training your sales. There is a solution for, I don't know, like uh, 
doing better B2B marketing. Maybe uh, you after, but it's only after you start analyzing the problem, figuring out what's going on, I start understanding, well, you know what? Actually, we have 60, 80% of our revenue is coming from the enterprise segment and all of our marketing is just on SMB. If you look at our reviewer marketing, honestly, sure. we're actually doing SMB marketing while the majority of the sales comes from enterprise segments. So what we need to do is we need to do more enterprise marketing. And now I start researching like how to do enter- enterprise marketing and I may end up on somebody talking about account-based marketing, which right. is by the way what we do, right? And now with account-based marketing, I still have several options. I may still decide to maybe purchase ABM software, maybe hire an ABM experienced ABM manager for them to, to create that function internally or hire a consulting company like ours or a training company like ours to help uh, train their team and in, in, introduce account-based marketing. So there are all these even cate- different categories that they may consider before actually starting to sol- search for I don't know, the best ABM agency or the best uh, ABM tech, whatever they're, they're looking for. And when we look at high ACV companies, uh, account-based marketing makes a lot of sense. How, how would you describe that as being different than what people would normally think about as maybe more traditional marketing? Uh, essentially, it's a much, it's your, tar- your marketing to accounts. and Audience of one. There is like this, I'm sorry? An audience of one. An audience I mean, of one yeah, or one a company. few. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You're targeting to very specific named accounts in, in principle. And you are that what the, what that means? Well, first of all, it means that the way that you're targeting has to change because you need to stack the odds in your favor. If you're marketing to one, two, or a few accounts, let's just say it like that, uh, to a handful of accounts, who you market to is so important. Because if you're marketing to accounts that are not buying, they're not a good fit, or maybe you're not buying, uh, you're wasting like an enormous amount, like because you're using maybe the same budget you would use otherwise for kind of a mass marketing you're using it on a smaller number of accounts. So which accounts you market to becomes ex- extremely important, which means that you really need to understand your ideal customer profile, right? You need to understand what we call like account selection, qualification, disqualification criteria to a level where you can really uh, prioritize them. And also understand the intent or whatever information that you might have about them potentially being in the market based on the intent data, based on your own engagement with your own marketing, based on maybe some previous conversations, et cetera, et cetera. So this is like the first, the most important step. And the second part of the second piece of the puzzle there is, of course, how you market is more personalized, right? So you, um, instead of, having a generic value prop and generic messaging, the idea is that you can really, um, mm, is, is, instead of, for example, let's say that I'm presenting my solution, uh, let's say I'm, I'm presenting my solution and 
Usually I might talk about a generic challenge that people might have, that companies might have, you know, you want to land more enterprise accounts, whatever, and that's why you should, you know, consider ABM. Uh, but if I know precisely what challenges they have and I can position it in that way, you know, based on the information that I have that I collected through market research, conversations, uh, sorry, account research, Bio research conversations is all, all, all parts of ABM, right? I can then position my solution in a much more uh, personalized, uh, personalized way. That makes sense. And that's, that's where they're going to really resonate because you're, you're delivering something they know that they need. And I think sometimes you can walk in with a presentation and they're just blown away because it's exactly what they're looking for, but they haven't even told you yet. <laughs> but they have, <laughs> because you've done the research outside of that that room and really understanding exactly. what's going on inside that company. And maybe another another thing there as well is that, you know, especially when it comes to ABM, uh, sales and marketing collaboration and alignment is is super important. It's inherently a sales and marketing. Um, game. It's not something that you can do just on yourself from marketing, like you might be doing some other marketing approaches. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely right. And having that collaboration, super helpful. Uh, what about the attribution? How do you know what is working in a marketing campaign and and what isn't? How do you track that at Full Funnel? Yeah, so. The problem with attribution in marketing in the way that it is done in most cases uh, using attribution software, using analytics software, whatever, your marketing automation, is that it is it has a very limited view. It has a very limited data and it has a very limited view. And so, for example, you might uh, attribute an opportunity to SEO, like Google search, uh, where they might have heard about your brand on, like I mentioned, like a podcast or somebody recommended you and they Googled your name. Right. The brand name, they came <laughs> on your website and suddenly that's SEO. And you say, okay, let's double down on SEO. Well, right, that's not the right decision. By the way, just our personal experience with our own brand, it seems like the leads that really came purely through SEO seem to be the worst. I don't know why, seem to be the least qualified. Yes, it's usually the majority of our leads, uh, of our opportunities, like qualified opportunities, let's say that are really ICP fit, um, have been following us for a while, have been, you know, usually via LinkedIn, but also, you know, maybe attended some webinars, maybe been subscribed to newsletter. There has been like this nurturing going on for a while and they, why? Because they kind of like they're educated. They're um, in the right mindset. They know what we are about. They know how we are different and why we are worth buying. And usually, when that happens, when all that happens, like sales cycle is shorter, win rate is higher. Well, in our case, of course, that's not going to be the case for enterprise software. But like in, in our case, we might even not have competition at all. Like they will just come to us because okay yeah okay 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 okay, okay. <laughs> i'm convinced right. okay <laughs> it's just a matter of whether i want to do it or not not with whom but uh and so why did i say that because like it usually takes a lot of touches right it's a lot of right touches over different channels etc which is which is very hard to to attribute and a lot of these things are not attributable 
I I cannot attribute somebody hearing about our brand on a from a on a podcast or in an event. I cannot attribute them. I mean, just the other day, my co-founder sent me a, a screenshot from a community discussion where somebody was asking about our courses, and the other people were recommending our courses. And this is something we are completely unaware of. It was just like community, right? right. So. How can a software attribute that? So going back to your original question, so how do you then attribute that? Well, we, we like to, we like to speak about a blended approach where you definitely using your, you don't throw the baby out with the baby water, with the bath water. You're using your um, analytic software, your attribution software, but at the same time using self-reported attribution, meaning just having a free text uh, field on your website saying where you hear about us. Um, this is not 100%, neither is the software, right? And then the third, third part of it is sales, of course, in their conversations can ask the same question. And in your customer research and your bio, customer research as well, you can ask your question, how do you discover, et cetera. So you try to get um, these three kind of pieces of the puzzle and you will start to see the pattern. You, you will definitely start to see the patterns. Uh, pattern recognition is so important. And it's, yeah, I think it's really refreshing that it's not just more software relying on somebody to check a box and say, yeah, this is the, the, the gold standard for attribution because it really is much more nuanced than that. How do you see some of the new tools in AI affecting marketing and maybe content going forward? Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of talk about that, right? So I think right now um, we are at like if if I take a step back and, and speaking about AI and content and content in general, I think the biggest problem that we have with content is not how fast we can crank it out; it is having the good content, like. Uh, your buyers don't need more content, they need better content. So that's the first thing. And already without AI, we have been producing a lot of bad content because we were trying to create content for SEO, right? right. We were writing for the search engine instead of writing for the buyers. So I think understand. So it's, it's a question for me. It's even beyond just the AI is. Are you writing the content about the right topics? Are you, are you producing the right, do you, are you producing the right type of content that really is not like superficial meat to 10 ways to, I don't know, uh, in, improve your cybersecurity? I don't know, like uh, <laughs> an ebook and, st and, and stuff like that. Right. And because if you remember how the buyers are researching at the beginning, they are not good for complex issues um, don't have a Googleable answer. And unfortunately, when they do start Googling, when they start discovering this SEO content, a lot of it is very superficial and doesn't have a lot of impact. So I think like fixing that would be my first priority. And then how you write it, I think the tools are evolving and will be evolving more and more and you might be able to use them for you know parts of your copy, etc. That's, that's kind of the stage that we are at. Um, but I, I would be much more concerned about the relevance. Uh, so is your content like actionable in depth? Is it, 
making an impact, in other words. Is your content going to be... Because like a lot of people talk about quote-unquote dark social, uh, meaning you know, your content being shared, getting to the places where you cannot get to. And right. this is something that happened to me recently. And I like, I like this story because I just closed the deal and I spoke to five or six people in the company and I only knew one guy. I was, in a, I was chatting with one person there, but all of them knew me. And I was like, okay, but well, where do you know me? Well, because that one person, my contact was actually sharing a lot of my LinkedIn posts internally on their Slack. Oh, ah, that's good. And they all kind of knew me, right? And I never saw them, you know, passing in my LinkedIn or uh, elsewhere. And so, okay, speaking of dark, dark social, so is your content going to pass that test? Is it share worthy enough for, you know, your buyers to share it on their internal Slack? Well, if it is, and you can do it with AI, I don't care, right? Whatever, whatever way you do this, uh, I don't think we are yet there. And I think it's a wrong focus because it's, again, it's focused on scalability. It's focused on uh, fixing not the main issue, right? Right, right. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Full Funnel online? Uh, well, people can find us on LinkedIn. We are posting every day. I'm sure you're going to drop it in the podcast notes. Yes. Or at well. fullfunnel.io uh, on our website uh, where we share in-depth <laughs> uh, uh, 3,000 plus words, uh, guides and articles and case studies. And for just getting in contact with us, like I said, LinkedIn is the best. We always respond on every each and every message that we get. And the content is fantastic. So you're definitely a company that is not just writing for SEO. You're writing for for people like me, SaaS founders, and and providing great actionable insights uh, about what's going on in the market. Now, so I really appreciate that about you and about Full Funnel. Thank you, much appreciated, and thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, just being here and for this great chat. I really enjoyed it. It's great talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks again, Vlad, for coming on the show and sharing your marketing insights and resources. We want all our sales funnels to be full. So you can learn more about Vlad and Full Funnel at fullfunnel.io. As always, all links, highlights, resources, full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Please subscribe and follow us there as well. Everyone who subscribes this week gets an autographed picture of the Invisible Man. There you go. So join us next time where our SaaS founder is Richard Palaria, co-founder of Kermit, where he is orchestrating the new landscape of physician preference spend management in hospitals across the country. You know, it's really an eye-opening look of what really goes on in operating rooms and how that affects costs for hospitals and all of us and what Richard and the team at Kermit is doing to solve that. Really, really great stuff. On our SaaS Fuel Expert Series next week, we have Michael Bertoni. And it is a great episode. Michael is founder and CEO of SaaS Talent, which helps SaaS and high-tech companies fuel growth with outstanding talent and avoid just throwing people at problems. And Michael is going to be an outstanding guest. I can't wait for that conversation. Love talking with him. So I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.